1: Hey, listeners, are you looking to monetize your craft? I know many of you out there are independent creators, publishers, educators, and of course, podcasters. If you're looking to monetize your passion, you have to check out memberful.com. Used by the biggest creators online, Memberful is providing best-in-class membership software for entrepreneurs and creators and has everything you need to run a successful and scalable membership program. In other words, Memberful allows you to build sustainable recurring revenue by selling memberships to your audience. You can send paid email newsletters directly through the platform, for example, without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can also publish your paid newsletter to a Memberful hosted members-only website, putting your brand front and center. And most importantly, you retain full control and ownership of your audience. Setup is super simple, so get started today at Memberful.com. That's memberful .com and start earning. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is David Noor, internationally recognized as the leading expert on Applications of Strategic Relationships. He's also the author of 11 books, including bestsellers, Relationship Economics, Co-Create, and Curvebenders. He also serves as a trusted advisor to global clients and coaches corporate leaders all over the globe. You can follow David's insights in various mainstream publications, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fast Company, Huffington Post Business Entrepreneur, the list goes on in this episode we talk about david's origin story coming over to the us with less than hundred dollars and not a word of english this idea of relationship currency or viewing relationships as a true asset how to build real lasting innovative companies the future of work what lies ahead what's changed what hasn't and what's in between specialists versus generalists what amazing leaders have in common and so much more so with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is my conversation with David Noor. The most interesting thing, hands down, is is coming over to the U.S. from Iran with 100 bucks in your pocket. So wh- why don't we start there? Uh, what year was that?
0: 1981 Mm -hmm. uh parents are both retired college professors in persian literature and persian history the old regime had an exchange program and uh, so in 72 we went to kuwait lived there for a number of years and you know revolution happened and they were all called back my parents had the foresight to realize there just wouldn't be a whole lot of future for me in iran so i've got a couple uncles in europe that said no thanks too much responsibility i had three here in the us two of them said no thanks One of them said, we'll take him for the summer. Hmm. So I literally landed JFK with a badge around my neck, put this kid on an Eastern airline flight to Atlanta. By the way, he doesn't speak a word of English. So I came here as a teenager, stayed for the summer, and my American aunt pretty much convinced my uncle, my dad's brother, that sending me back might as well be a death sentence because the Iran-Iraq war was going on. And so in a bizarre fashion, mom and birth mom and dad, give me up for adoption, aunt and uncle adopt me, and I was able to stay here, finish high school here, get my Eagle Scout here, and uh, go, to, go to school and, and, and build a life.
1: In a way, what a blessing for you though, right?
0: And, and I'll be forever grateful, both to, to, to parents back in Iran, but also to aunt and uncle here, because again, without them, and, and it would have been a very different trajectory. You come as an immigrant and you realize what an incredible country this is and how a decent education and, you know, putting in a good work ethic can, can really help you set yourself apart from, from your peers.
1: Well, coming into an American high school as an immigrant couldn't have been easy those first few months, <laughs> few years, right? I mean, as you said, you didn't speak the language. What was that first year like?
0: Not only that, if you remember that time, '81 was around the hostage crisis. Mm. So imagine coming to the to the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and and the joke is, you take Atlanta out of Georgia, you get Mississippi. <laughs> so so yeah, it was it was tough because you know they would go home, see all the news, about how evil you know Iran is, and the next day I'm the only Iranian kid, you know they they know they see. So I, I got into a lot of fights and. And not speaking the language was just, was really tough. And, and English, believe it or not, is actually one of the most difficult languages to learn because of all the nuances. Mm. So for a better part of two years, I had tutors. And I, I was always strong in math and science, but I failed my first history exam because I couldn't understand what I was being asked. Uh, but I did do two things that that helped. I played soccer and that was kind of a natural skill. And and that, you make some friends that way. And I dated a cheerleader and and you get the empathy vote or sympathy vote with that one but but uh yeah the first couple of years were, were a little rough
1: okay so you graduate high school you go on to georgia state right
0: yeah i actually started engineering because it's my what my parents wanted me to do and a couple of years of electrical to be specific at circuit design and i took like seven calculus classes and i just couldn't see myself doing that rest of my life so i transferred to computer science uh, for your audience, I'm going to date myself. Pascal, Fortran, and C++ classes. <laughs> and then, like, I'm not coding the rest of my, my life. So I took a business law class. And I got to tell you, the professor absolutely lit a fire in me. And I just I fell in love with complexity of business. I think you need, like, 180 hours to get an undergrad. I graduated three-something. And got a co-op job at IBM and then inside sales job at Computerland selling 286 computers and quickly figured out that, you know, I, I had this knack for engaging and influencing people. And, and and at a very young age in the Middle East and a lot of other parts of the world, you you learn to build and nurture relationships naturally, not not forced, not, you know, with a facade, but naturally. And i and I leveraged that I leveraged that and and yeah did did really well early on and technology was I was passionate about technology was excited about technology combined that with genuine interest in other people and and you'd kind of tend to build a decent decent career in sales and sales management and 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 that whole path and then uh, after graduate school I became president of a company I raised a round of funding merged and sold that business then I spent six years at a private equity firm and we bought and sold. 110 different companies. So through the consulting, through the private equity world, that really became the genesis of my firm in seeing a lot of different management style, a lot of different leadership structures, what was incredibly functional, and a team that took a mediocre idea to new heights, and conversely, completely dysfunctional teams that took incredible ideas off a cliff. And it dawned on me that it just can't be the product or service or the market they serve. There's got to be more to it than that. So it's, I became a student of business relationships and, and their impact on value creation.
1: Did you come to this naturally through your own experience or did you realize that there was an importance in relationship building in business uh, through a mentor, through somebody that, that was sort of guiding you in this direction?
0: Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I think if you talk to anyone who feels like they found their calling, they found what they were meant to do, I would submit to you that most of us get parts and pieces. So if you think of a jigsaw puzzle, you get parts and pieces without the cover, Right? you don't know what the end result or end image is going to look like. You just start to get parts of it. And, you know, I, I distinctly remember August of 2004, I'm having coffee with a local friend, a guy named Dan Brown, who at the time was a deputy CIO at SunTrust Bank. And over coffee, he says, you network better than anybody I've ever met. Can you come to our church and just talk about what you do and how you do it? And Adam, I'm thinking church, five, six people. I'm like, sure, happy to come help. And I show up and there's 250 people sitting in an auditorium. <laughs> and I'm like, shit, what am I gonna say? Then I'm gonna laugh and walk out, right? What What could I possibly share? about networking that they haven't heard before. So I talked about, you know, 45 minutes about from Iran and, and and I told stories about, you know, being five or six years old and dad walking me through the bazaars of Iran. And dad didn't just pick up what he needed at the house or what mom wanted to make for, for meals that day. Dad also had a relationship list. And he made sure we went and saw the eight, 10 people that, that whether it was a you know, access to an influential politician or a plumber. You know, He made sure that you know we shook hands and had tea and sawed those individuals. And I didn't get it then, but I certainly get it now that the rest of the world builds relationships first from which they do business. Uh-huh. As Americans or as Westerners, we're so focused on the business that if and only if the business works, we'll think about asking Adam, how are you and how's your family? I spoke for 45 minutes at this church event. I stayed for 90 minutes afterwards. People are like, can you come talk to my kid's school and my rotary? And do you have a book? And do you have a workshop? And I'm like, you literally feel like you've stumbled onto something. And I said, what I shared just cannot be that unique. So I started reading. I've read 108 books on business relationships. And what I stumbled on was there's two camps. There's the art, which is how do you work a room? How do you get and give business cards? And There's a lot of pedestrian kind of retail information out there about quote-unquote networking. There's also the science, which is actually called social network analysis. And it's actually studying, it has nothing to do with Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook. It's studying patterns in human interaction. Why do we stay in touch with some people? Why do we connect with some people and not others? Fascinating, it's just incredibly academic. And most of it will put most people to sleep in about 15 minutes. The lucky part that I stumbled on was really combining the two. So I wrote Relationship Economics in 2008, started doing workshops. My first workshop, I went to Emory where I'd gone to grad school and I said, listen, you have a great space. You have a website and a shopping cart. I don't have any of that. Why don't we put on a workshop and we'll split whatever we make. And I just emailed the whole, you know, email marketing and all that stuff really wasn't that prevalent. I emailed a whole bunch of friends and 40 people showed up from Sony and KPMG, and Goldman Sachs, and Chick-fil-A. And I'm literally walking the room, I see the registration list, I walk in the room and I'm having an out-of-body experience. Like surely you guys do this already. Surely this is already part of your new hire training and management development and no it isn't. So that first one led to KPMG as a client and a KPMG partner leaves to go to Deloitte and brings me there, Deloitte, The auditors at Siemens, they introduced me to Siemens. Siemens is a sponsor at Disney. They introduced me to Disney. So you stumble on this idea that relationships are more than a soft skill.
1: These names that you've mentioned, KPMGs of the world, the Disneys of of the world, to your surprise, if if they weren't employing this within the organization at the time, these tactics, what was the blueprint that they were operating at the time? Like was there no understanding of this notion?
0: So there's a lot of myths and misperceptions about, still I cringe when I hear people call it a soft skill because we've proven it is your only sustainable differentiator. I, I can't put my finger on any company's brand, but most people agree brands have enormous value. I can't put a, my, you know my finger on a company's repute, but most people agree reputations have enormous value and trust. Relationships fit in the same bucket. It's a soft asset. I would venture to make the assertion that it's one of the most undervalued assets individuals, teams, and organizations possess. The other one I got to just share with you and your audience is this massive misperception that it's about more. I need, I need to know more people. I need more social media connections. I, I, I need more followers. No, you really don't. You need more authentic,
1: You need more real. This idea of viewing relationships as a true asset, do you see things changing on the hiring side of things? Like When you look at hiring managers and recruiters, are they placing a new premium on recruiting talent, talent that can bring forth a network of authentic relationships to an organization, or do they just not get it yet?
0: Unfortunately, I, not, not at that level. I, I see it as at the leadership level. I see it at the board level. I see it as the investor level. So I, I, I do some work for private equity firms and I've kind of built this niche area of expertise around strategic relationships. So imagine, Adam, a company who's interviewing two equally competent and capable chief financial officers, right? There's nothing I can teach them, tell them about finance, But I'm often one of the final interviews, and what I'm gauging is the breadth, the depth, the diversity, the quality of the relationships. And we've actually built a strategic relationship scorecard. And with a high degree of confidence, I go back to that private equity firm. I go back to that CEO and say, two equally competent, capable leaders, two equally, comp on the finance side, in my opinion, candidate B, Will, has a much higher likelihood to succeed because she has a deeper, wider, more quality, more diverse portfolio of relationships. And if she doesn't have the answer, she'll tap into her network to find the answer. And that resourcefulness is one of the attributes that's absolutely gonna set her apart.
1: How do you test for this? How do you know this? How do you evaluate this?
0: through a series of questions through a series of scenarios i can ascertain the individual observing their team environment and team dynamics typically within a 30 day range i can ascertain and i can score their team dynamics organizations same thing i you know if you think about it it's it's these organizations aren't stale buildings or a logo it's made up of individuals and teams and their ability to cooperate collaborate Communicate in solving problems and making decisions in real time tells you a lot about their propensity to build and nurture authentic relationships.
1: How do you see things changing in t- in terms of the idea of building these strategic relationships? Like, what's changed over the past year, two years? What hasn't? What are some of the blind spots? And what are some of the emerging patterns that we should take note of here?
0: Sure, great question. So let me let me let me go from macro to micro. Okay. Uh, from a macro standpoint i would submit a lot of organizations fundamental strategy became obsolete so none of us you know this this global pandemic is a is a perfect example of a black swan event we knew what mm-hmm. pandemics were we had seen them before we knew what they were we just had no idea the impact that this would have and i'm, and I'm also saddened by the fact that i, I adam I, I don't know about you but i surely thought once we got a vaccine we would be over this And I'm saddened by the fact that, particularly in the U.S., this whole vaccination has become so politicized. But beyond that, so A, kind of rethinking your strategy, forget three and five years out. Now it's the line of sight has become 12 to 18 months, right? Number one. Number two, I'm bullish on key trends the pandemic accelerated. I'm bearish on trends the pandemic is trying to change. So let me give you an example. A lot of, myself included, a lot of folks have been working from home for years. The fact that leaders figured out that productivity does not equate to me physically having to show up, particularly as knowledge workers, we're actually more productive, not having to deal with the commute and working remotely. And actually what I call WFX, where X marks the spot. As long as I've got internet access, I really could work from anywhere. And I think you saw a lot of knowledge workers doubling down on what I call work-life blending. I don't wanna give up quality of my life so I can live in a high rent district where I physically don't need, really need to be there. When I say I'm, I'm bearish on on trends that the pandemic is trying to change, you know, one example there is we're never gonna meet again. Listen, I've been at this for a long time and I've yet to find something that's gonna replace you and I meeting in person. Shaking hands, looking each other in the eye. So I, I believe in hybrid relationships. I, th- I think you know, some events make a lot of sense in person. I'm a big fan of those. but I used to full disclosure, I live in Atlanta. There were 32 flights a day from Atlanta to the Tri New York area airports. I would up at four, car would pick me up at five. Get to the airport on a 7 a.m. flight. I'd be in Manhattan by 9, meetings all day, you know, drinks, dinner, get back on a 9, 10 p.m. flight. i will be back home by midnight, 1 a.m. Brutal wear and tear on your body. You'd feel pretty productive. Well, you know what? I can do most, if not all of that today through Zoom, right? I can do all that online. And there's no reason to go do that. Now, conversely, there are sometimes, there are a lot of opportunities to create, solve some fundamental challenges, have some really meaningful collaboration and dialogue. That That's predicated, that's mandated by kind of meeting in person. So the idea of we're never gonna meet again, I just, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's gonna be sustainable. It's also very difficult to build a really tight-knit culture if you don't meet in person. In the last several months, I've moderated several leadership retreats where one of the biggest ahas from it had been people meeting for the, senior executives who interviewed the last year, all online, never met in person any of these people. All of that to say, I believe, and your question about how has this impacted, so strategies have become obsolete, much shorter time horizons for those, this idea of knowledge workers and several key trends with hybrid teams, that I believe are going to continue to stay with us. And I'm writing in, and again, this third edition of relationship economics, this idea of hybrid relationships. So some relationships you only had digitally, my strongest counsel is find ways to meet those people in person. Some relationships you'd only met in person, make sure you also connect and engage and add value to their lives digitally. You also have one last comment. You also have the global footprint. So increasingly, what we figured out in the last 18 months is we need multiple sources, especially with our supply chain challenges that I believe are going to continue. We need multiple sources for where we previously may have gone just to one. So increasingly, your global relationships are going, to, are going to continue to be critical. Again, I don't need to get on a plane to go to Kuala Lumpur. I can now do that much more effectively. And it's more accepted to do that virtually. Yep. So it does change some of the relationship dynamics. And I'm excited to really continue to research the space and better understand the implications of that over the next two, three years. Yeah,
1: and you've written about this, this idea uh, of real and lasting innovation. So as you research this more broadly, you point out that most corporations still lack this culture of innovation and transformation. And in my experience, a lot of that innovation work gets done in person. Uh, There's something about innovating in the flesh that zoom simply can't replace right so no, no if question. we're not going no like question. if we're not going to go all the way back to in person how do you think innovation gets impacted at the corporate level
0: yeah so so thank you for bringing that up you you brought up real versus and the coin phrase that i've heard and, I, and i've used as well which is innovation theater mm. uh, unfortunately in a lot of organizations key leaders pet projects. Get slapped this innovation piece. And that's how they get funding. That's how they get it it's sustained. Even some of the zombie projects that I'm pretty sure we killed years, you know, months, if not years ago, tend to rear their heads because they've got innovation attached to them. And and regrettably, most go nowhere. So what I what I believe in and what I coach my clients to think about is really a stair step. And and Adam, if you think about it, iteration is doing the same thing better. So do we build, are we building a culture? Are we building an environment where we're more focused and we put more energy and effort on challenging the status quo, not defending it? So do we have an environment where our team is constantly, where our people are constantly looking at and asking, is there a better way? That's an example of a culture of iteration. How do we do the same things we've always done better? You iterate enough, you'll reach the next step, which is innovation, which is how do we do new things? In a lot of organizations, new typically means new product, new service, where the biggest threat, and I think this is really important for your audience to hear, the biggest threat to most businesses is actually new and innovative business models. And there's plenty of those around, the Ubers and the Airbnbs and just on and on and on. New business models are challenging a lot of the stables in our lexicon, mature companies. If you think of Disney and Disney Plus, Disney Plus's streaming business found a way to disrupt itself and find a new revenue stream without cannibalizing their existing. Because I want to go to Disney World for a very different reason than I am streaming their content. But they figured they had so much content that was a core competency, core asset. Why not leverage it in a new creative way? And now you got a whole bunch of other people that are trying to think of streaming services, right? Iteration. How do we do the same thing better? Enough of that leads to innovation, which is how do we do new things? The ultimate stair step is disruption, which is how do we do new things that make the old obsolete? So planned obsolescence, forced obsolescence, that's how every organization remains relevant. And one of the most dangerous things about dinosaur leadership is, hey, we're successful, we're doing great, why should we do anything different? And that's exactly when a two by four is gonna come at your head, and it probably has a rusted nail in it. Real innovation doesn't need a battalion, it needs a SEAL Team 6. Get in, get it done, get out. And I tell my clients, I like you, respectfully, not that much, I just, I don't wanna hang out with you for the next five years, I wanna get in, I want to I want to solve a problem, I want to come up with an idea, I want to go make 8 or 10 bets knowing that most of them will go nowhere, but the one or two that hit are going to be the future of the core business.
1: So in my experience, you know, it takes never mind dinosaur leadership, that aside. Dinosaur thinking is like a cancer within large cap organizations and it takes a very different skill set as you know to start a business than one to scale that business, than one to optimize that business, right? And a lot of folks that have been in these senior level seats, they haven't done the reps, like they haven't been in a startup environment. They haven't even been with a scale up. And all of a sudden, they're being tasked to innovate within a large cap corporation, and they just don't have the thinking. They don't have the skill set required to start something lean or, or scale that new idea.
0: Adam, you, you're, you're exactly right. In that, if you think about a mature company in a mature industry, Mm -hmm. every facet of its structure, every facet of its metrics, compensation, incentives, promotions, on and on and on, is predicated on a known business model, a perfect execution box, and do not deviate from this exact recipe of what we do and how we do it. As a matter of fact, I call my friends who are chief financial, chief legal, chief compliance, general counsel. I call all those friends oncologists mm. because their fundamental job is any shiny new thing in this perfect execution box we find, dig it out and kill it. So in my most recent book, Benders, I wrote an entire chapter on organization of the future. Now I'm going to give you and your audience a glimpse into some of our work. I don't want to mess with that organization's core business because we both know it works. It works phenomenally well. They've built a massive market cap. And by the way, it pays that CEO's salary and my fees. So I don't want to mess with that core business. What I do want to do is structurally mindset, skill set, capabilities, competencies, get the the requisite mindset, skill set, tool set, roadmap out of there into something we call a sandbox engine, mm. away from that prying eyes, away from that corporate structure. And again, I, I don't need a battalion. I don't need five thousand people. I need five. And it could be a joint venture. It could be an investment in another company. It could be something that we kind of incubate from within, and we put in the sandbox. But whatever it is, eight the goal is eight to ten unique business models in a portfolio approach. Eight out of these ten may go nowhere. Right. But the two that hit, the two that gain critical mass Mm -hmm. can absolutely be the future of the core business. And again, the incentives, the recognitions, the compensation, all of that is very different than the core, and it's the model we've seen in the last decade have any chance of producing real innovative business models, not just products and services, but real innovative business models within these large, mature organizations.
1: And another idea that you talk about in the book, and I don't know if this is a natural segue or not, but Curvebenders has kind of this sort of spiritual angle to it where you're talking about people entering the fold and changing the trajectory of that business idea, right? So as you talk about employing process within an organization, how does this idea of bringing in people from, say, an external environment apply here?
0: So... In Curvebenders, and every book, Adam starts with me asking a, a simple question. Full disclosure, I'm 53. I've been thinking a lot about what work is going to look like for me for the next decade. So that was it. That was the original premise. What, this pandemic obviously changed a lot of our assumptions and assertions about the way we work, the way we live, the way we play, and the way we give to others. So I started asking a lot of questions of what, what will my work, what will the future of work look like given all the disruptions that we face on, a, on an ongoing basis? And again, the entire chapter two is dedicated to 15 forces. Our longitudinal research led to as ongoing disruption that will continue to disrupt us in a massive way in the next decade, right? So in face of that disruption, my premise became the only way for any of us to remain relevant is to continue to learn and grow. That's, that's an assertion that I think most people would agree with. Yet, the way we learn and grow today and leading up to this point has basically been very linear. Think of a, a 45 degree truck ramp, right? Learn, learn, learn. Maybe at some point in the future, apply it. And the best example I can give is our undergraduate studies. I don't know when was the last time you looked into differential calculus. It's been a while for me, right? So we go get this piece of paper after a four-year degree, and regrettably in the U.S. with a whole lot of kids going into debt they have no business going into, but that's another topic for another episode, and yet most people, Gallup organization will tell you most people are not working in the fields for which they went to school for. We got that undergraduate degree, and, and we continue to do that. A lot of learning and development organizations. Hey, here's another class for you to learn. and. Is another one to learn. And like intellectual food, maybe at some point in the future you'll use it. My assertion is, given how dynamic the market is, that linear growth will no longer suffice. And what we all need to embrace is this idea of non-linear growth that looks more like a hockey stick, not the truck ramp. So what does that look like? I don't need a four-year MIT degree. I just wanna learn how to code. So can I learn how to code in 30 days apply that to solve a real problem, then learn the next thing. And what happens is by immediately learning something that I apply, I start to daisy chain these learnings together and it accelerates my journey up that curve. In that process, what I also figured out was beyond passive learning opportunities, one of the fastest ways up that ramp are through a few, but really strategic relationships. And I call those relationships curve vendors. Think of that boss that took you under his or her wings and didn't just teach you a product or service. They taught you how to be an empathetic leader, how to be a servant leader, that has stayed with you 10, 20 years later. And it's shaped not just the leader that you've become, but it's also shaped the person, the husband, the father, the brother that you've become. Those individuals who have not just a transactional, but a transformational impact on our lives, few, That have a profound, they leave an indelible imprint on not just what we accomplish, but who we become, are called curve benders.
1: Of the 108 books on strategic relationships that you have read, uh, and you mentioned that at the beginning of the episode, one, what one or two stand out for you? And two, did any of the 108 touch on this thesis that you're putting forth?
0: Bowling Alone, another one, Influence. Another one, uh, more recently, Adam Grant, "Givers and Takers." A woman named Liz Wiseman has got one called "Multipliers," and and she delineates uh, value, you know, value creators and and versus value diminishers in your relationships. Yeah, there's there's been several that that talk about parts and pieces of what I talk about. Coming full circle to your question, the books that I've read talk about psychology sociology, human interaction, networking, which makes me cringe to this day because I think it's very transactional, but it's commonly understood, the value of it. But also then soft assets like brand, like repute, like credibility. And that's where the art and science, that's where relationship economics
1: came from. By the way, um, huge praise from me and from others that know your work. There's uh, a list of organizations that you've worked with beyond CIPLA and these other names that you've mentioned, Disney, Microsoft, Honda, you've done work with Cisco, Siemens, Pandora, Marriott, the list goes on. So congratulations on the portfolio of work that you've built, David. It's awesome.
0: Very kind of you to say thank you. And I'm I'm in awe of some of these incredible leaders I'm blessed to meet. and And Adam, they become friends. And you're I again I'm in awe of the fact that they're the ones that are in the arena every day. I you know, I I'm I'm a I'm an observer. I'm a I've got a front row seat to their incredible success and that the talent that had some of these organizations. Somebody asked me, is there a common thread between your most successful clients? And I think they were looking for industry or size or you know, perhaps uh, you know, some other metric. And I and the only one that I've been able to quantifiably capture has been visionary leadership. It's that one leader who says there has to be a better way. There has to be a different way. As you said, little to no interest in academic constructs without the ability to implement frameworks and constructs and and see quantifiable value from it. But it's, it's awe-inspiring to see them lead some of the organizations they do.
1: We've been talking a lot about the future of work. We've been talking about this idea of having a, a linear career path, but how that's being disrupted. And you see this all being accelerated over the course of the pandemic, right? Like if you had, if, if you had a successful, say, 10, 20-year career in retail as a senior leader, and all of a sudden you were laid off during the pandemic— you're in some kind of trouble. Like if you've never had to sort of reinvent yourself, it's tough going. At the same time, there's a lot of sort of like different narrative around, uh, should you be a specialist? Should you be a generalist? Like what is the best path to think about? And as you, not only as as, uh, somebody in business, as an entrepreneur yourself, as an author, as a thought leader, but as a parent, what do you recommend to your kids? Like how should they be thinking about building the best skill set in order to adapt to what's happening on the other side of this?
0: Yeah, great question. So uh, I have a, a, a 20-year-old daughter who's a, a second year at Georgia Tech chemistry major in the pre-med track. She wants to go pursue medicine. And I've got an 18-year-old son who's a senior in high school and about to embark on, on his collegiate career. I've coached both of them that the arc of any job, Adam, my, my research, my experience is about three to five years. It takes you about three to five years to really figure out not just where the coffee is, but figure out how to really excel in that role. And I wrote about this in Curvebenders. If you don't proactively, intentionally look for opportunities to reinvent yourself, you're going to struggle to remain relevant. So back to your comment about the 20 plus year, not just retail, but I've got a brother who spent 30 years at Marriott. Brian knows more about the hospitality business than a whole lot of other people I know. The challenge is, now approaching, you know, in his 60s, not sure how employable he is. Because the perception is he can't possibly adapt to the changing needs of that space, which actually is not true. But the point is, you've got to find ways to reinvent yourself. So in the book, in Curve Curvebenders, I talk about this idea of a personal S-curve. And again, organizations have figured out these S-curves every few years to reinvent themselves. You need to embrace the same idea. I coach my kids to become deep generalists. So although my daughter wants to pursue medicine, I, I helped her get an internship with the head of robotic surgery. Because even if she becomes a surgeon, there's little to no argument that robotic surgery is, is gonna become a prevailing field or biomedical engineering or any of those that combine our traditional understanding of medicine with technology. The son wants to go at the intersection of business and technology. So likewise, I'm, I'm, I'm helping him understand this revenue operations or marketing ops or understand the tech stacks that are now being used in these fields. Both of them have had exposure to AI and ML engines to really understand what those capabilities and functionalities are. I'm investing in, in, in cryptocurrency with both of them because, again, I, I don't believe that's going to go away. So I'm making sure to understand what blockchain is about. So just like I coach my, my senior executives, the key is push yourself beyond your comfort level. Beyond, no growth ever comes from a place of comfort. And if you can embrace being bad at something, if you can embrace that growth mindset, You know what? I'm not going to be great at something early on, but I can learn and I can adapt and I can improve and I can apply those setbacks and failures as experiences to get better at this.
1: That's how you'll remain relevant. Newergroup.com. That's N-O-U-R group.com for more. Obviously, uh, the books, you've got 11 of them, David. (laughs) Quick plug, Relationship Economics, Co-Create and Curvebenders, your newest, which is out now. Uh, David, where else can people follow you and your work?
0: Sure. So I'm fairly active on various social media channels. If you just Google my name, David Noor, N-O-U-R, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm fairly, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm Instagram, and and there's a YouTube channel with a whole bunch of videos. But the website, we also have a, a private, Adam, I don't know about you, but in recent months, I've found that the big public social networks to be highly promotional, highly political, and just divisive so i belong to four or five different kind of micro communities we've got one of our own called the north forum so if you just go to norgroup.com slash forum it's a private smaller group but it's about 2500 folks that are there like-minded professionals that are talking about these topics we've shared today and i'd welcome your audience to come join us again norgroup.com slash forum
1: appreciate it david uh, and to listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. David, pleasure to have you. Adam, good to be with you. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Electric. Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour.